Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. In case somehow you missed it, uh, and it's been announced twice already this morning, this is Valentine's Day, right? But uh, yeah, if you missed it, you're you're probably too late. It's probably not going to be a chance to sneak out, not get caught sneaking out. So um, I've prepared some advice for you guys for next year. All right. Uh, I got online, uh, actually at the suggestion of my wife, and looked up the, uh, the worst gifts that you can give on Valentine's Day. So I'm going to give you a little run through of, of some of the worst gifts. Ranked very highly in one of the polls was uh, uh, knives, uh, really anything sharp. <laughs> Don't give that next year. Self-help books, self-help CDs, self-help DVDs, anything self-help, totally off limits. Don't give that. And this is actually a whole category also, not just vacuum cleaners, but anything that plugs in. Don't give it, okay? Now, I, myself, actually, last year, uh, I gave my wife a paper shredder. <laughs> Serious, I did. <laughs> but there's, a lot, there's more to this story, okay? This year, I, I went to James Avery, and I got her this lovely gold pendant, right? <laughs> <laughs> but here's the deal, okay? She liked them both equally. I swear, Tristy, she's sitting in the back, right? You liked them both equally? Yeah, see? I asked her, I checked yesterday, and she's not just saying that because I put her on the spot. You know, it's just all about knowing the person you love and timing and everything and when she wants, what she wants. And she liked the paper shredder last year. That's what she wanted to know. Gold cross, which, yeah, it's probably an improvement. Now, the, the point of this is, can you imagine, ladies, receiving a gift... That was so great that you said to yourself, I, don't, I never need another Valentine's Day gift. In fact, I don't even want anything else. Can you imagine getting a gift that good? Guys, can you imagine giving a gift <laughs> that's that great that your sweetheart says to you, oh, I, don't, I don't ever want anything else. I don't need anything. And you believe her. <laughs> can you imagine living your life that way? That you could honestly say, I don't, I don't need anything else. In fact, I don't even want anything else. My, my life is whole. My life is complete. All that I need, I have. Can you imagine living your entire life that way? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus is telling his disciples, here's how to live the life that is blessed by God, the life that is full and complete and whole, and you need nothing else. As we begin this study of the next two weeks of the Beatitudes, I want us to go back and and get into the setting again. Remember a couple weeks ago, we laid the foundation for the ministry of Christ. It started with Jesus going to John, the Jordan, and he was baptized. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him, and he was filled with the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. And the Spirit took him and impelled him to go into the wilderness and for 40 days the spirit led him around and he was doing battle with the adversary for 40 days and he was relying on nothing else than the filling of the spirit and the word of God written on his heart. And he was victorious over his adversary. And having achieved that victory, then he went out and he began his ministry. It's described beginning in chapter 4 verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And remember we said he was not going around proclaiming that he was going to die and be buried and rise from the dead. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among you. He was announcing himself as God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And crowds began to follow him because he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, from all over the nation of Israel. People were coming to Jesus. He was getting a following because... They were wondering, is this God's Messiah? We hear about all of these healings and we hear about this preaching and this teaching and he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's proclaiming the gospel of kingdom. Is this the Messiah? And they're following him. They're gathering him around him. Some are just curious, but some like James and John and Peter and Andrew, they believe, they, they believe this is the one. He is the one. This is God's king, and he's telling us about the kingdom. And so Jesus sits them down. He says, let me explain to you more fully. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And he preaches to them the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want you to step back for a minute and imagine that you are a Jew in the first century and you've gone out into the open air to hear this one that you think is Messiah, who's king, future king, and he starts his sermon. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are the meek. And you would say to yourself, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Jesus, no, 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 no. That's not what the kingdom of God is all about. No, no, no. Blessed are the rich. That's the sign of blessing. Blessed are those who are laughing and having the party. Blessed are those who are, are, are strong, not the meek, but the strong, the ones who are powerful and they can take anything they want. We're following a Messiah that's strong and he can come in and he can wipe out all of Rome and establish our kingdom for us. Whoa, Jesus, slow down. And he just keeps on flying. See, it's difficult for us because we've read the Sermon on the Mount so many times that we don't enter into this disorientation that they felt when Jesus began to say, this is what the kingdom is all about. This is what life is all about. This is what blessing is all about. But what he's doing for his disciples is he's turning their world completely upside down. So maybe we better step back for a second and, and, and figure out what is he talking about? What does it mean to be blessed? It doesn't mean happy. 
There's some modern English translations that say happy are these people. But that's, that's a terrible translation. It's a completely superficial translation. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about blessing. The word blessing is the Greek word uh, makarios. And probably the best way I can explain it is with an illustration. The Greek island of Cyprus was called makarios. It was called blessed. And the reason was that if you were a citizen of that island, you didn't need to leave the island. Everything that you needed for a rich and full and satisfying life was contained upon the island. You were blessed. That's all you need. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want a life that is full and complete and you have need of nothing, as a matter of fact, you can say, I really don't want anything else. All that I have is all that I need. And all that I have is all that I want. I am blessed. Jesus is saying, this is blessing. Now, do you hear the incredible paradox? Full and complete, satisfied are those who are poor and have nothing. Take you back to the Greek again. In Greek, there are two words for poor. One referred to the person who had to work hand to mouth. Every day they had to go out, earn a living, they would come home, purchase their food, they would eat what they had purchased, and then they had to go out the next day and they were just living hand to mouth, day to day. Those were the poor, the common people. But then there was another word for poor. These are the people who were on the verge of starvation every day. They were on the verge of being completely destitute every day. Jesus uses that word. He says, full and complete are those who are destitute, spiritually. Full and complete and satisfying, satisfied and in need of nothing are those who recognize that they have nothing. This is the beginning point of blessing. When we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, we have nothing, we have absolutely nothing to offer you, but we need something from you. Who was it in Jesus' ministry that was attracted to him? Was it the rich? No. No, I mean, you know, the rich wanted to have him over for dinner once in a while because it was kind of a, a trophy. Get that popular young rabbi over to my house for dinner and I'll show him off a little bit. But those who really wanted to hear what Jesus had to say and who were drawn to Jesus were those who were poor, those who were destitute. It was, it was the prostitutes, it was the sinners, the lawbreakers, it was tax collectors who were outcasts, lepers that no one could touch, and those who were blind and lame, those who couldn't do anything for themselves, those who, who, who recognized their spiritual poverty and their physical poverty. And they saw in Jesus one who could make them full. It wasn't the rich who were satisfied who were drawn to Jesus, but those who recognized that they had nothing. And Jesus would say in his ministry, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well don't need a physician, but it's those who are sick. And he wasn't saying that there were a lot of well people. He's saying that there are just some who recognize that they're sick and some who don't recognize that they're sick. And the ones who recognize that they're sick are the ones who are drawn to me. I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, in verse 17. Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know 
that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. In other words, you just don't recognize how poor you are. This is the beginning place of blessing. This is the beginning place of the gospel. We don't come to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I'm sure you're glad that I'm here because I'm really going to make a great addition to your team. I bring so much to the table. No, we come humbly before him and we say, Jesus, I have absolutely nothing to offer you, but would you give me eternal life? I don't deserve it. See, the gospel is incredibly humbling. Every single person comes to the cross of Christ exactly the same way. We come humbly on our knees saying, God, we have nothing to offer, but we are really desperately needy people. Give us Jesus. Take away our sins and give us eternal life. And the moment that we do that, God removes that debt of sin fully and finally, completely. All sin from the past, all sin even in this moment, all sin in the future, it's removed forever and we have Jesus. We have eternal life but not because we brought anything to Jesus. And see, it was those who recognized their extreme poverty who were drawn to Jesus. And and the beauty was, Jesus was also really drawn to them. I'm going to read to you from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. The Lord is saying, I don't need anything from you. I made everything. I'm the creator of the universe. I don't need anything from you. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. See, there's a sequence in the Beatitudes. There are eight characteristics, but he's not talking about eight different people. He's not talking about a certain blessing that's on those who are poor in spirit and another blessing on those who are meek and then a third blessing on those who are persecuted. It's a composite picture of the life that is blessed and the starting point for a life that is full and rich and complete is realizing that you have absolutely nothing. And so he begins by saying, blessed are those who are spiritually destitute. Second, turn back to Matthew chapter 5 again with me. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus, blessed are those who, who mourn Blessed are those who are happy. Blessed are those who are rejoicing. This word for mourning means to grieve with a grief which so takes possession of the whole being that it cannot be hidden. If you've ever seen people from Eastern cultures grieve, you know exactly what this word is talking about. There's beating of the breast and there's wailing and lamenting and dirt thrown on the head. It's grief that's so deep that they can't hide it. They can't keep it inside. And Jesus is saying, full and complete and satisfied are those who are mourning and weeping. Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, he's not talking about just being sad in general. 
Blessed are those who are sad or blessed are those who are blue. Blessed are those who are depressed. No, he's talking about blessed are those who mourn over the things that God mourns for. And what is it that breaks the heart of God? That God grieves over and aches over. He grieves and aches over the sin of the world. He grieves and aches over the fact that the world is broken because of our sin. Blessed are those that share the heart of God and are broken over sin. Let me read to you from Psalm 119, verse 136. The psalmist wrote, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Wow, that's quite a visual image, isn't it? Not even a a tear trickling down. My, My eyes shed streams of water because I do not keep your law. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I want you just to think for a moment. When was the last time the Spirit convicted you of a specific sin and you were brought to tears? I will confess to you that doesn't happen a lot for me. One of the things that I I admire and appreciate about my wife is that she has a really sensitive heart to God's Spirit. It is not an uncommon thing for me to walk into our bedroom and see her with her Bible laid open, her journal there, and she's in tears. I just have to step out because there's a holy moment happening that I'm not a part of. Sometimes she'll tell me afterwards, the Lord convicted me of this, or this, or this. And it's not that she has this bad self-image and she's crying all the time, it's that She's sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, and so she's brought to tears. And I confess, that doesn't happen as much for me. I think it's that I I have a shallower view of the holiness of God, and I have a, a more superficial view of how deeply God is hurt by my sin. And honestly, that leads to a superficial view of Christianity. The Christianity is all about, hey, happy, we're the happy people. You know, you want to... Christians, they're, they're, they're happy. Come join the Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy Club. You know, no, that's... No, do you see the, the, the sequence here? Blessed are those who, who are poor in spirit. They come and, and they place empty hands before God. They say, God, I have nothing. Fill me up. But as they look down at their hands, they recognize it's not just that I bring nothing. My hands are stained with sin. And the hearts are broken. Because they share the heart of God over sin. And if you look throughout scripture, it's not just personal sin, but those who are really in touch with the heart of God, their hearts break over the sin that they see all around them. I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel is one of the most godly men in the entire Bible. Daniel was a man who was really in tune with God's movement in the world. God spoke to Daniel in really unique ways, and I think it's because Daniel Daniel shared God's heart. Look in verse 3. Daniel writes, So I gave my attention to the Lord God, to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That's a humble man. He's coming empty-handed before the Lord. He said, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed and I said, Alas, O Lord, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loyal love for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel's not at home in Israel. Daniel's in Babylon because his people have sinned. They've broken the law. They haven't kept the Sabbath. They've become idolatrous. And so God has removed them from the land. And so here is Daniel in Babylon. He's longing to be home in Israel, the promised land with with God's people, but the temple's torn down. The city is destroyed. And he knows why. He says, God, you've been faithful to your covenant, but we have not. We've broken your law. Verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. We didn't listen. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Even as it is this day, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, that is, those who are able to stay behind, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them in Assyria and Babylon and Egypt because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But to our Lord belong compassion and forgiveness because we have rebelled against him. Has your heart broken not only over personal sin, but over the sin of our nation? We live in a wicked nation. There are pockets of people all throughout our nation who love righteousness and who love the Lord God. There's no question about it. But we live in a nation that promotes evil and applauds evil. You need to pay attention to that. It's not just on the internet, it's at the grocery store. It's everywhere. It's all around you. Two of the most popular city destinations for vacation are New Orleans and Las Vegas, which is also nicknamed Sin City. But it's okay because whatever you do there stays there. Nobody knows. Except God Almighty who looks down on our nation and says, how I long to bless you so that you can be a blessing How I long to bless you with the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you can take the truth of the gospel to the nations, but you're so consumed with the world that you don't love righteousness. Does that break our hearts? It should, because when it breaks our hearts, then it makes us really different people. We stand apart, we are holy, we're a light for our nation. We mourn over the things that break the heart of God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who have nothing to bring to God. Blessed are those who who mourn, who recognize their own sin and the sin around them. Those are the ones who are full and complete because they're seeing life as it really, really is. It was interesting this morning, I was driving in, turned on the radio, which I I hardly ever do when I'm driving in, getting ready for church because I'm trying to, you know, get focused. But uh, I was on a Christian station and a pastor, I I don't know where he's from, I don't know his name, but he started preaching his message, and his message was, it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of laughter. I was like, wow, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. God speaking through the radio. Huh. It's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of laughter. Why is that? Well, because you don't learn much in the house of laughter. 
But in the house of mourning, you take stock. You take account. Oh, my life is so short. And I have the opportunity with my short, short life to really bring pleasure to the heart of God. But when I sin, I grieve his heart. God, break my heart. Break my heart for the sin around me. Let me be a light to those around me so that we can influence people for Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn because they see life as God sees life. Third, he goes on, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My translation says, Blessed are the, the gentle. But I like meek better because meek's one of those words that you never use. So you have to stop and say, what in the world is he talking about? Meek, what does that mean? Well, it's a, really a very challenging word to translate. There's no, no single word that translates it. Basically, it, it, what, it means, what it doesn't mean is, is weakness. And to be meek is not to be weak. To be meek is not to be passive. Meekness is strength that has been restrained. Meekness is strength that has been restrained, strength that is not used for a greater good. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read this passage a couple of weeks ago as we were introducing the series. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Remember, what we said is that Jesus Christ was given to us as a real example. Here's how to live. Follow in his steps. Trace the outline. Learn from him. Follow his model. What is it about Jesus that we should imitate? Verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And yet, while being reviled... He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was weak. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he couldn't defend himself. He had legions of angels at his disposal, thousands and thousands of horrifyingly terrifying beings that are strong and mighty and glorious that he could have called at a moment's notice, Father, send in the troops and wipe out not just Rome, but all of humanity. He had that much power and yet he chose not to use it. That's Jesus, meek and lowly. Not Jesus, weak and passive, but Jesus holding back. Why? so that he could go to the cross and pay for our sin. So that someday we could be heirs with him when he returns, not meek and lowly, but on a white horse with a sword that's drawn and he takes out all of his enemies and he establishes his kingdom over all of the earth. And if you'll remember, as we looked at the grand view of history, the reason that you were created is so that you would rule and reign with Jesus. And so you don't need to defend your territory today because you have an inheritance with the heir of the universe, Jesus Christ. And what he's calling you to do today is to imitate him as he was going to the cross and hold back that strength so that others can see Jesus Christ. And I promise you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. It's a promise. 
Not one that we often claim, but it's a promise. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when we do it in a way that's like Jesus, they see the forgiveness and the kindness that flows through us rather than the revenge and the anger, and they're drawn to Christ, and there is another co-heir of the grace of life. Blessed, full, complete are those who don't have to feel like they defend their territory all the time. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, and if I'm honest with myself as I read that, sometimes I say, you know, but I don't want to be meek. (laughs) It's not just counterintuitive. It's like, Counter personality. I don't, I don't want to be meek, or at least, you know, sometimes I'll pray, God, yeah, make me meek because you promised blessing for that, but I don't want anybody else to think of me as meek. So how do I, how do I embrace this? How do I become one who sees that this is wisdom, that this world that Jesus said, this is actually how it works, not how you think and not how the world says. Blessed are the strong, blessed are those who take. How do I... How do I Buy into that and believe that. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a reason that I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness more. And that's because I've become filled up with the world. I guard my territory I claim I want to take. And if I'm filled up with the world, then I'm not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is, it's uh, the Beatitudes in particular, it's it's an introduction to the whole sermon. And he's going to expound these concepts in the rest of the sermon. He's going to talk about these things that suppress our appetite for righteousness. He's going to talk about lust. Because if you're hungering and thirsting for lust, you're lusting after things, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're hungering and thirsting over anger and hatred and bitterness and unwillingness to forgive, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're hungering and thirsting because you're covetous and you want the world's goods, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're hungering and thirsting because you're, you're, you're anxious and you're worried about your daily provisions as Don preached on last week. And you're always living in anxiety over the things of the world. You won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are appetite suppressants for the righteousness of God. You've been feasting at the world's buffet and it's not filling you up so you have to go back again and get more from the world's buffet. And you're hungry more, and you're hungry more, and and you keep going back over and over. It's this vicious cycle, and it never fills you up, but it does suppress your appetite for righteousness. To be like Jesus Christ, when you're wrong, to naturally forgive. I don't even want it sometimes. Why? Because I want everything right now. I believe falsely that what the world has to offer will make me blessed, will make me full, complete, and needing nothing. And so the starting point for me 
And hungering and thirsting for righteousness is saying, no, I won't hunger and thirst after the things of the world any longer. I won't let them fool me and trick me. God, instead, stir up within me a hunger and a thirst for the things that are right and true. Prodigal son is is the perfect illustration of this. He goes to his father and he says, give me what is mine. Give me what is mine. And he takes it and what does he do? He goes to Vegas. (laughs) He goes to the house of laughter. And he pays for the whole party. For days and days and weeks and months. And then he runs out and all of those people that he thought were filling him up and that fun that he thought was filling him up, suddenly it's gone and he finds himself destitute. There's a famine in the land and he can't even get a job. The only job he can get is feeding pigs. So he takes it. But there's nothing for him to eat. He can't even eat the corn that the pigs are eating. He has to eat the husks of corn. There's no nutritional value, but it's enough just to kind of fill his belly and stave off that aching hunger inside of him. And the story tells us, Jesus tells us, all of a sudden he came to his senses And said, what am I doing? What in the world? I could go back home as a slave with nothing in my hands and I would be filled. And so he leaves the husks of the world behind and he goes back to his father and how is he greeted? What have you got to bring me? No. His father rushes to meet meet him, falls on his dirty, filthy, swine-stained neck and kisses him puts a robe on him and a ring and says, come in and let's have a feast that really will fill you because you're home. Because you're home. And for each of us, there are enticements of the world that are suppressing our appetite for things that are true and right and filling and blessed. We need to wake up because we won't be light in a dark place. When we love the things that the world loves. Righteousness means not just personal righteousness, but it also means God setting everything right. Because you know what? The world is broken and we're broken. But someday when Jesus comes back, he's going to set all things right and then the meek will inherit the earth that has been restored and renewed, the new heavens and new earth. It'll be a wonderful inheritance, imperishable and undefiled. It won't fade away. But if we choose to live for this world in this life, we will always be hungry and never be satisfied. So as we close, I want to encourage each of us, let's go silently before the Lord and say, Lord, where am I hungering and thirsting after things of the world that just can't satisfy me? Are are there husks that I'm eating that are leaving me empty? And let the Spirit step in and, and point these things out and break our hearts and move us to mourning over the things that break the heart of God. Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we confess to you that we are people who are so easily deceived. We like to think of ourselves as, as wise and strong and powerful, but Father, we, we have nothing apart from your grace in our lives. 
Pray, Father, that you would make us wise so that we could be blessed. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are soft to the conviction of your spirit, that we would mourn over the things that break your heart. I pray, Father, that we would have the wisdom not to defend our territory here and now, but know that we are heirs of the universe. We will rule and reign with your Son, Jesus Christ. We're full, we're satisfied, we're complete. And Father, I pray that we would turn away from the foolish enticements of this world that lie to us and tell us they'll fill us up but leave us empty time after time after time. Father, make us these people so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who made it possible. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. You may have noticed we only got through four. So we're going to do the second four of the Beatitudes next week. So your assignment is real short. It's simple. Read verses 7 through 12, Matthew chapter 5. We'll see you next week.